Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the Sage Says. I'm DG McCullough, Debbie Gardner McCullough. I'm a narrative coach and a communications coach from New Zealand based in the fine state of Wisconsin. In each episode, the Sage Sayers podcast unpacks tips and strategies in communications, and we interview interesting individuals from all over the world who found the gift, the opportunity, and even the knowledge from life's inevitable hiccups and challenges. My guest today is Yug Varma. He's a San Francisco, California-based trained microbiologist and synthetic biologist with a background in organic chemistry. He's also co-founder and CEO of a skin microbiome company, Phyla. All of Yug's work leads towards an impressive goal, to develop the next generation of whole cell therapeutics to treat chronic microbial diseases. So Yug's kindly joined our show today to share his path as an entrepreneur, his early starts, but also to offer us some tips and techniques on grant writing requesting for funds, and even patents. Yug has successfully applied for three patents, an academic fellowship, and an industry grant too. Yug also negotiates well. In fact, he successfully negotiated a deal with a leading skincare company to launch a first in-class acne product. With that, I'd consider Yug an expert on written persuasion and negotiations. And from that, we can all learn a lot, especially now during these singular times when many are pondering their next move, even their first venture. Yug, welcome to the Sage Sayers. Thank you so much, Debbie. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, thank you, Yug. So I wondered if we couldn't, if you don't mind, could we get started by you sharing just a little bit about your early starts? Like, where did you grow up? What swirled around you and what, if anything, from that boyhood time inspired the work that you do today? Well, um, I'm from India originally. Uh, I grew up in a small town called Nagpur. It's probably over two million people at this point, but that's that's how small towns are in India. Uh, <laughs> my parents, uh, you know, I grew up in, in, a, in a lovely large house. Uh, my parents are also entrepreneurs. Um, and they're educators. So my mom owns and runs a school. Um, and I think early on, it, it was a really interesting environment. Um, although my mom ran a school, I was never part of the school because she thought that being the principal's son would, would give me, you know, an undue advantage and she didn't want that. So, you know, I went to a different school. Um, and I thought that was just really, you know, I never thought too much about it as a kid, obviously, but it was just like this really amazing bit of integrity or, you know, this kind of fa- sense of fairness that my mom just, you know, put, it was just an assumed thing. And it's something that I've carried through. Uh, the other, you know, recollection I have of growing up is my mom working so hard because she is sort of a perfectionist, right? And she has such high standards for herself. It doesn't matter that, you know, there's a deadline and and she just has to meet it. She has to meet it on her terms. It has to be up to the quality level that that she holds herself. And I think some of that has seeped into me as well in terms of striving for not just, you know, the same everything, but something truly unique, building something better than what has come before, 
Uh, and that really is a driving force for my company and our work here. I love that. Thank you for sharing. And very touching as a mother to know that part of your early inspiration was was your mom and both parents being entrepreneurs and that perfectionism that drove your mom to strive for the best is also serving you as an entrepreneur to do the same. And and you've done so well with Vida. You've built it up from nothing into something amazing. And a lot of your growth has happened during these singular times where it's become even more challenging for entrepreneurs. I wondered of all of your achievements with Vida and in your career in general, what become the proudest achievements of your company to date? And why do these make you feel so proud? Um, I think as a company, our proudest achievement is launching our product um, and really giving people an option. So, you know, we have an acne product uh, with a new approach and, and with really important technology innovation. Um, we are Phyla, but but behind it is a biotech startup called Phy Therapeutics. And we joke that we're not really a skincare company. We're actually a biotech company, and we're putting biotech innovation into skincare. Um, getting there was obviously a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of, you know, development. And it wasn't easy. We, we had to overcome numerous technical hurdles and, and other hurdles. Um, just bringing it back to the market and and having brought that to the market, having customers, so many customers who've come to us and said, look, I had tried everything. I was about to give up. You know, there's so many, um, you know, so much frustration, so much money spent, so much time spent on the wrong products. Uh, and then they tried Phyla and, and it really made a huge difference to their life. That to me is amazing <laughs> on a personal level. Um, I think one of my biggest achievements is that we're still here because, uh, as a startup, there, there are millions of chances or times when you just, you know, you're about to die. You know, you're, you're, you can't go on. It's really difficult. You can't see past the next curve and yeah. you just decide to keep going on. And so personally, the fact that we're here is, is great. Thank you for sharing that. As a fellow entrepreneur, I get it. And I'm going off script here. So forgive me, Yug. But all of us have our unique place or our special mantra or a special feeling that spurs us to go on. What is that for you? Um, so throughout my entrepreneurship journey, I one uh, very important and grounding philosophy I've discovered is the, the philosophy of the Stoics. Uh, this is an ancient Greek philosophical sect. Um, and it's just wonderful. Um there are many sayings in this uh, sect, but, you know, and there are many great sort of followers of, of Stoicism, like Seneca and um, um, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, one of the principles of Stoicism is called Amor Fati, which means I love my fate. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, stuff's happening to you, bad stuff, um, good stuff. You say to yourself, Amor Fati, I love this. This is happening to me for a reason, right? Um I, uh, I'm late for work. My boss yelled at me. Okay. Um, I'm going to accept this as a challenge and I'm going to become stronger because if I can overcome this challenge, that teaches me something about myself and it teaches me that I'm resilient. It teaches me that I can overcome this, um, and I will be stronger at the other side. Right. So it's, it's sort of a, a subtle shift in the mindset of, 
not feeling like the victim, you know, stuff, bad stuff happens to all of us, you know, at some point in our lives. And you can either sit with it and let it crush you, or you can process it, you know, accept it as a challenge. And then, of course, you know, there's all sorts of trauma. You can process that in, in due time. But just the fact that, you know, we're always faced with adversity and how we how we face up to it is really how what is the measure of our true self? Not what happened to us, but but how we deal with it. Very, very gorgeous language and sharing there. And it's a lot like the sage approach, which is the premise of mental fitness mm -hmm. through positive intelligence as well. And that is, you know, every challenge, every setback, every inevitable life hiccup, there you either accept it and stay where you are or you convert it to a gift and an opportunity. And that that is what you've done. And I wondered, again, slightly off script, but hopefully related you're an organic chemist, so you had this rich science background and scientists must experiment and assume most experiments fail. That's mm -hmm. So you have to, you build up. I've, I've interviewed other scientists and people from your background, and there is this resilience piece that people in business might not learn quite so quickly as you do. What's there for you and me sharing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, one of my business mentors said, the hardest thing in business is still easier than the easiest thing in science, which, you know, is to say that science is really hard. It's mm -hmm. unknown. You're taking a step into the unknown and you're doing something no one's ever done. You're asking questions or you're seeking answers to questions no one's ever known the answer to. So there's so much failure in science. I think it really builds up a callus or a, you know, a tolerance for okay, I'm going to fail, that's fine, and I'm going to find a way through because that's I've done that before. So it's that familiarity piece and it's that um, ability to put the ego aside and then the, I'm also hearing there a cognitive agility piece. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and, and those are important, right? And those are things that I think everyone can learn. Um, if, as a scientist, it becomes a part of your formal training. But, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, you, you certainly have to have that spirit and that resilience and that, kind of thing of like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to see it through. Um, but you learn so much through the journey of, of just, you know, having to do this and that and everything else. Yeah, so true. And much of your success, Yug, and your and Violet's success has happened within COVID-19, times when funding was short, resources were shorter, our world got turned upside down, we were working remotely and often cut up, cut off from others. And yet you've thrived. And I wondered, from the last couple of years, what have you found as the gifts and the opportunities as an entrepreneur functioning within these times? Yes. I mean, I think not just for me, but for everyone else probably listening, um, it's been such a weird couple of years, so difficult, so different. Um, I think that, you know, we certainly, we launched in the middle of a pandemic, we've carried on in the throughout the pandemic and then run our business through it. Uh, there have been all sorts of challenges. Um, I think we were very lucky with our timing because we were doing a lot of lab work uh, and we finished our lab work just like in late Jan and Feb, uh, just as the world was starting to shut down, you know, in March wow. 2020. And we were very, very lucky. So I feel very fortunate because if we had to carry on lab work, you know, especially during those months where it was just, you know, no one, we, we didn't know we were washing our groceries, right? We were, <laughs> we were, uh, 
we were basically leaving packages outside for a day before we touched them. Um, and so I think through that, a couple of uh, wins or a couple of insights is we went fully remote. Uh, we're still mostly remote and we're trying to come back and build that. That was obviously a huge challenge because as a small company, a growing company, you have a tight group. You need to make everyone feel part of the group because everyone's pulling so hard and trying so hard. They need to understand, you know, oh, this is all in service of a bigger goal. So I think that piece, handling that properly was great. And, and we're still trying to, you know, because now we know, we thought that, oh, this, you know, in, in March of 2020, you thought, oh, man, um, it's going to be, what, a few weeks? <laughs> I'm going to be back like next month, right? I hope right. so. I have all this stuff going on. Now we know that, you know, it's a, it's a long, slow off ramp and, and we may just have to live with this. So um, working remotely is a part of our life. We're going to need to deal with it and still make people feel included and, and like everyone's on the same mission here. Um, so, so that I think is, is a primary challenge, especially for me as a CEO, you know, managing our team and building it. Absolutely. And I wondered if now we can pivot slightly to one of your superpowers, one of your many superpowers, and that's this ability to apply for grants and patents and even funding, and, and you're here because of this skill. I wondered, well, you and I have met prior to our interview, so I can remember vaguely from our first conversation a few months ago, you're self-trained, right? You never really got any formal training in this area. You taught yourself on the fly. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your learning process when it came to applying for grants, patents, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and then how you how you got so good at it? Yeah, I think that while I certainly wasn't fully trained, you know, it helped a lot that I I was a scientist for many years, and you know, you write reports, you write all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, with the grant writing piece, I think it it just was really important to to step outside of your science and your you know your little kind of very intense focus and understand what what's going on, right? Like whatever agency you're applying to, what kinds of grants get funded? Uh, what are they looking for? Uh, what is the intent of the, the funding opportunity, right? And then ultimately, does it align with your own objectives, your company's objective? Because it, it is a big mistake to chase grant money where you end up essentially doing contract work, where you're saying, oh, I can get money to do this project this project really has not very much to do with my main, what I want to do. But if I get that money, maybe I can work on my project on the side. No, your project is a main project. The grant has to be either your project or something slightly on the side. It can't veer off too, too much because in the end, you'll end up doing the work on the grant. You, you will not have a guarantee you if it's divergent, you know, you will not have time to go back to your own work and it will be, you know, time wasted, money wasted, and opportunity wasted. So, you know, certainly be selective about writing or uh, the grants that you apply to and, and make sure that you are, you know, mostly aligned with, with the grant opportunity. And then, you know, talk about um, writing the grant. Think about it from sort of the end backwards, right? Like, what is a result that's going to get to the um, the finish line for you, for your project? What is the, the end result that will impress or satisfy the, 
study group that will finally analyze your grant, right? Do you want a follow-on grant after that? Is there like a phase one, phase two? If so, at the end of phase one, how do you transition into phase two? What would that look like? So that as you, you know, achieve all the goals you set out to achieve, you then say, oh, okay, the natural next step is this next phase two. So please, more money, right? <laughs> uh, so it's just sort of thinking about things like that. And, you know, I was fortunate in San Francisco and in the Bay Area to be in an ecosystem that gave a lot of support, helped people who had never written a grant before to to really kind of um, write those and submit them and, and make them really impactful. And that's so helpful. And I wondered... If someone listening to our show today, our interview today, is wanting to write a grant, they know they have to and they've never done it before, What is there anything unique about that actual writing style that you think is consistent across all grant applications? Like is there a special tone you need to develop? Do you need to sound like here's the thing. Here's where I've struggled when I've taught uh, people from your background and taught them corporate communications either as a professor or when I'm their coach. I've noticed people who come in from your background tend to sound, you know, they're attached to a more formal writing style because that is in the that is the environment in which you studied and trained and learned and grew, right. and and to be more accessible or have a warmer tone would stand you out maybe in a negative way. So, mm-hmm. but I but I know you reasonably well, and I know you're a grounded, open person. So, how do you find that? that tone that sounds modern and warm and friendly and worthy of this grant money, but also aligning with sort of the best practices for grant writing in that space. Is there, are there any tricks there that you can offer? Yeah, I think at least for scientific grant writing, you do have to be quite formal, like you said, not, not quite formal, but you know, you have to put things in a scientific way and there's a certain uh, tone and cadence to that. Um, I think that warmth certainly has a place, especially towards the end in the discussion. And a lot of the warmth is not on the page. Uh, so, you know, speaking of that warm tone, that that kind of personable tone, um, you, you like most things, getting grants funded is uh, requires relationship building. So, you know, talk to people in the agency that's funding you, getting to know the structure, getting to know who to talk to, who, who's a decision maker, who can help you get to, you know, the person who, who makes the decision. Those are all really important. So, like, once you get the grant or once you get comments on your grant, you reach out to, to your program manager, you talk to them, you build a relationship. I think that's where that warmth sort of comes in. And it's, again, something, you know, that that sometimes I've learned the hard way where I say, oh, man. We could have we could have gotten a lot further a lot quicker if if we had just had that relationship, but um, yeah, it, like anything, you know, where, where there's a human co- interaction or a human connection to be made, there's a lot to be gained with that warm tone, with that kind of empathy and the human touch. Thank you. And one one final sort of technical process related question: when it comes to grant writing. I'm assuming there is some word constraint and the grant has to fit within a certain number of words or within mm-hmm. a template that's got mm-hmm. some limitations around it. Any tips or best practices to keeping the writing tight and on on point and not too rambly? Oh, man, revise, revise, revise. So, you know, the writing principle that I use is first write everything down. Just throw it all on the page, right? Make it 
it's going to be FBW fast. It's, it's going to be, you're going to do it fast. It's going to be bad and you're going to do it wrong. <laughs> I love that. Kind of like a base paint on the canvas. Exactly. You Just know, throw it and all on the canvas. Everything you think ought to belong in there, throw it on. Right. Uh, throw it all on there, start to organize it, revise thing. And then once you've done that part, right, which is the intense focus part, you, you pull yourself out and say, what is this grant about? What does the agency want? What have they funded before? What am I trying to do? Is it fully aligned with this? And then how am I driving all of those considerations together so that at the end of, you know, I'm writing this, whoever's reading it on the other side, at the end of reading all of this, they say, oh, I get it. I get this is this is in our wheelhouse. This is squarely down the middle. And why wouldn't we fund this? So, yeah, it's a lot of revision. Beautiful. A lot of revision. It sounds a lot like journalistic writing when you're, especially if you're on somebody else's docket, if someone Mm -hmm. has sponsored you as a writer, like I'm sponsored for branded content writing. And so oftentimes when I've been tasked and commissioned to interview like five or seven different voices and then put all of that together into some historical narrative about the company, that first process is just throwing everything on there that I think ought to belong. Mm -hmm. Then, like you said, I take a step back, do something else, you know, take a few days off or sometimes it's just a couple of hours off in the day and then ask myself those questions. Why, again, was I hired to write this piece? What was it that they really wanted? What story did they really want me to tell? But how can I still tell it in a narrative where the reader will actually want to read it? So true. So true. Yeah. Yeah. How do I make it relevant to my audience? How do I, you know, where's the relevant piece? But which parts out of all that I've gathered become the most compelling parts to include? So there's also that selection, sort of that selective process. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, you you can say so many things and put it in so many ways, um, but there is, you know, a clear way. Not just one, but, you know, there may be many clear ways, but you don't have to put it in crisp, clear uh, organized ways that people will get. Yeah, and you laid down something else powerful there too. Have others review it for you. Oh, we, yeah. we cannot capture everything and we need the voice of others that we trust. That's very true. We have a few moments left to talk about your negotiation skills. You found this amazing partner for Phyla and I wondered, out of all that I'm sure you've negotiated throughout your career to get to where you are, but any sort of high-level best practices or tips or offerings for those who are trying to negotiate for something, either for themselves or their company? Yeah, I mean, um, I think, you know, speaking of that sort of warmth and the the, the kind of uh, personable tone, I think that's, again, a, a place uh, where you deploy that. Uh, I think a lot of people approach negotiations as you and I are sitting across from each other on opposite sides of the table. You have it, you know, you are on your side, I'm on my side, and I'm going to get as much from your side as possible or give as little to you. I think that's mostly wrong. Um, or we should do as think of, of negotiations as little as possible in that tone. Um, and instead, metaphorically, you should pick up your chair, go to the same side as the person and talk to them, you know, and say, how can I help you get what you want? And you understand my position and help me get what I want or, or, you know, understand where I'm coming from because I don't want to pick your pocket. I don't want to take things from you. I want to put things in front of you that you like and that 
you know, helps me get you what you want so that you can give me what I want, right? Um, so when it comes to negotiations, just understanding people's mindset, their their constraints, their limitations, what they can and cannot do, why they're there in the first place, you know, I mean, why do you want to talk to me about my technology? Uh, why are we having this conversation? I think those are really important because ultimately that's what drives the decision making. Um, at the end of the day, you know, whether you get this much money or that much money or what the terms are, that ends up becoming just detritus. That's just details on a page. The, the main thing of will, will we or will we not do this um, arrangement or this deal depends a lot on why you came to the table in the first place. Beautiful. So I'm hearing there, do your research, stay audience-centered, consider yourself as an equal person on equal level to the person mm -hmm. with whom you're negotiating and spend some time on the front end and even during analyzing what's in it for them. What can I bring to this person? And then how right. can I enhance what they're already doing? And in return, I'll get to enhance what I'm doing too. So staying that audience in and being very empathetic. That's what I'm hearing. Did I capture that correctly? Absolutely. And I'll add that, you know, it's almost never a zero-sum game. It's almost never a I win, you lose kind of thing. Um, and if you can make it sort of a win-win, which is now a much abused term, uh, I think, you know, the more it can help you. Hugh, it's been, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. I wondered what's next for you and what's next for Phyla? Um, Yeah, we're doing a lot of work building uh, more products. We're, we're, you know, scaling up our messaging and, and reaching people. It's just been an amazing journey and, and we hope to continue. Uh, we're growing really fast. And so next year is going to be just even more growth and even more um, more sort of goals to achieve. And I'm just really excited to be able to, you know, get back a little bit to the science, drive some of our programs forward and, and bring out more innovative products. Well, thank you for taking time out of your day. And I'm, I'm going to continue to watch you and Phyla and be cheering you on from the sidelines. I wondered how can my listeners find you and learn more about Phyla? Absolutely. Uh, we have our website, phylabiotics.com. Uh, Phyla is P-H-Y-L-A. So we're phylabiotics.com. You can learn more about our products. You can you can get our products there too. Um, we're also on social media, at phylabiotics on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, etc. cetera. Uh, so, you know, we love to hear from you, answer any questions you may have, disseminate our own knowledge through those uh, platforms. And uh, yeah, if you have, if you want to learn more about acne or how it's caused or how you can treat it or what, what's the best way, uh, that's us, uh, phylobiotics.com. Well, Hugh, thank you again. And from Wisconsin, I'm DG McCullough, and you've been listening to my weekly podcast, The Sage Sayers. You want to try me out as a group or individual coach for your most problematic communication challenges? Check the show notes for my Calendly link. And that's where you can find my website and my LinkedIn profile too. Thanks for listening this week. And we'll speak with you again soon. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.